Hello and happy snow day, post Martin Luther King Day. Welcome to Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make our community tick. And today there's a headline I'm really happy about. Afro-Semitic Experience releases new album marking 25 years of bringing peace, good vibes, and new musical dimensions to our community. Afro-Semitic Experience is the group that plays on, that reinvents and rearranges traditional songs from both the black church tradition and the Jewish tradition with a jazz and bossa nova and other feel. And today Warren Bird, pianist and co-founder, is in the studio to tell us about the new album and what the group's been up to. Warren, welcome to the studio. So nice to see you. Hey, likewise, Paul. It's good to see you after solid minute. I think it's been a solid minute. It has, yeah. We've done a lot of interviews, but never in the studio. Yeah. Davis wrote is, the bass, yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming down in the snow. Oh, uh, no biggie, you know. I'm from New England, so it shouldn't be, it should actually be a bit of a pleasure for me. I am ecstatic to walk in the snow because people are nice and the place looks so pretty. You almost have this feeling that a new song came over the loudspeaker the whole world transformed along with it into a, a momentary peaceful bliss ah uh, yeah yeah i can dig it <laughs> so warren congratulations on a new album you guys said you've been around 25 years how many long how long is the afro-semitic experience it's actually been 26 26 years, as of i believe the 17th of january and um it all started over at uh uh, congregation Mishkan Israel, but it had already begun uh, sort of uh, incubating itself uh, some months before that. Um, and of course, there's the whole story of having a casino gig stint and how it sort of um, evolved into a, an opportunity to make a joke. Um, and uh, that joke became a project. Now, what was the casino kickstand? Well, I had a five-week stint over at Foxwoods. Oh, um, really? Playing yeah, jazz? that was way back in, that was back in 97. What was that like? Oh, it was Playing really neat. Playing jazz at Foxwoods. It was really neat. Um, at that time, it was really pure, and there were no interferences or no um, sort of... Uh, directives about oh it needs to be this kind of music or that kind of music it was mostly hey a brand new loser lounge and um the um booker was uh, a friend of the community um namely of hartford community and he said hey bird come on down do a stint and uh, at that time it was a lot of jazz and I brought in as many of my uh, cohorts as I could. You were in the jazz scene, the Jackie McLean world, right? What kind of stuff were you playing? Oh, a lot of good straight-ahead jazz. Mm -hmm. um, I played a little bit of everything. because You composed, you know, right? Yeah, I composed as well. And um, there's actually quite a few albums from back in the day. I, um, love, you. I love your piano playing. It's my favorite kind of jazz playing because I could follow where it's going with the tune, but I also hear you reaching for dimensions that aren't there. Yeah, that's part of the challenge I've found, yeah. and I've made it a part of a mission as a musician individually to be able to touch the people who listen so that they're not totally uh, befuddled by what's happening. Mm -hmm. 
and that there's actually a, um, a inter yeah an interchange. You know. So you're playing at Foxwoods. Yes. And what happened? David showed up late. David Chevin, bass player. <laughs> That's right. From now, the Haven Hamden. The main cat. The main cat on in this particular picture here, because <laughs> it is he's the idea guy and he's the big heart and push of this project. But um, showed up late for the gig because, I guess, man, coming from New Haven, getting all the way over to... I feel like Foxwoods is another principality or something. <laughs> like Monaco. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Monaco. <laughs> I'm trying to... There are a couple of other little small uh, principalities like that, you know. With gambling. There you go. <laughs> so right David, shows, David shows up late. Had you started yes. playing? That's correct. Uh, we had already started. Um, and we decided to play soon and very soon. We we're going to see the king, mm-hmm. as in King David. That was uh, Alvin Carter on the drums at that moment. And uh, sure enough, David finally shows up about seven minutes late, something like that. Four. And when he finally sets up his bass, he jumps right into the tune. And I was like, oh, wow. He knows this tune. This is a tune from pretty much the christian um neo um gospel tradition um by now it's about 50 years old um but at that time it was fresh so even in 1997 it was still considered a cutting edge gospel standard um and that was by andre crouch and i said boy how does, how does this cat know andre crouch numbers and um, apparently, he had done a stint sometime in New York playing in church mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. So it was one of his gigs, but I guess he also embraced the music. Because He's also Jewish, and like Jewish people love gospel music. Oh, okay. Blues yeah. and gospel music, it's like hardwired in. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. That's beautiful. I think a lot of folks, you know, I've been to a few places besides uh, the Netherlands and Europe and you know, a lot of folks are always asking me, gee, why don't you consider doing a gospel music project and bringing it over here? And I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, that was almost yesterday. It was <laughs> almost yesterday. I did direct a choir at one moment. Um, and it was Shiloh Baptist Church was a long existing church in the Hartford area. And uh, a sort of well-known preacher ran the church. And he had about um, six or seven different choirs. And I uh, directed two of them for about six years. Mm-hmm. So by the time that stint was over, I was pretty much uh, good with uh, doing any kind of church-related uh, um, gigs directly or any kind of church-related or gospel-related stuff. But here you were playing the song, David Jumps In. That's right. How did that, what happened next that led us to the creation story? Well, David said, hey, why don't we get this going? It just sounds like something we could explore to get. Like, I've got some nice tunes I like to play from my tradition, the Jewish liturgical tradition, um, and there's so many various aspects of that, and, uh, you know, we could... Like, do a thing, and, and kind of along the lines of um, this beautiful album uh, by uh, Charlie Hayden and Hank Jones called Steal Away. Never knew about that. Oh, it's a beautiful record. 
And in fact, uh, it's um, a seminal record for me in that uh, when I had been in a hospital for a certain amount of time, a friend of mine brought it by and I used to listen to it um, late at night while trying to sleep um, in traction, lying in a hospital bed. Um, and it gave me much comfort. Um, so David knew the song you were playing and you knew the album he was referencing. Yes. So was the next step you went to Michigan, Israel to play on Martin Luther King birthday? Well, the next step was we learned some songs together. We, mm-hmm. we actually had a few uh, practicing sessions. We talked about a few uh, concepts and things we wanted to explore as a duo. And then Rabbi um, Brockman. Brockman. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sometimes my memory's not so great. Mine's gone. Yeah. I don't even remember what it was like. Well, you did pretty good there. <laughs> well, I know, Rabbi Prophet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he decided to have an MLK service, and he invited uh, David and I to come in and do a thing. People loved it. Part, yeah. And you switched off, right? You'd go from the black spiritual tradition to the Jewish tradition back and forth, but you kind of played a jazz, right? Exactly. exactly. You guys have a great feel together, the way the bass and the piano go together. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, guys, yeah. you guys definitely sync. Well, he's great to work with because he gives me a good push. You know, he's a strong player, and I'm a strong pianist. So we create a beautiful tension together, and it's nice to try and balance it out with him as well. So that was 26 Martin Luther King birthdays ago. People <sighs> loved it, and so you decided to add some people and make it a band. Is that how the Afro-Semitic experience was born? Pretty much. You know, like we have been working with Will Bartlett, David, that's right, the sax man, as well as a good arranger and overall. And it seemed like you always tried to keep it evenly balanced who was in the group racially, right? Well, that's what it looks like. You know, it's funny how these things work out. Was it intentional? I don't think. I'm going to tell you this. It was intentional in the sense that it just so happened we had a mixture of friends Mm -hmm. who we love to play with. And I mean, you know. At that time, I might have been a guy that, that would tend to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, try and bolster my race a little bit because we need it. But in actuality, I had had other trios and had incorporated a mixture. And part of it was conscious. I, I really felt like there needed to be um, um, a, a, a contribution from all sides in this music. Um, you get to a point where you understand that the only way these big things can move forward is if we have elements that come from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that becomes a part of uh, a consciousness-raising effort on my part or a, a way to sort of push myself to move past my box. Um, and I think, like, a good deal of what happened was uh, something um, very organic. And it sounds like I'm hemming and hawing a little bit, but my point is is that it was already there, a tendency to mix things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted some other elements. I mean, the inclusion of uh, Stacy Phillips, for instance. On the dough, bro, the late Stacy. Forget about it. You know, that, that guy, he was great. And I didn't know what was happening at first. But I knew that I liked the idea 
of having this very unique instrument become a part of the Dobro really became part of the voice of the of the band. And Baba Coleman played it along with Alvin Carter played a really important role in the percussion. Oh yeah. Yeah, and Baba had a very strict methodology about playing to percussion and which percussion to play when and what he needed going on when it come, came to him taking a sort well, the, of... Well, the a, band took off here. You're obviously the must-hire at Martin Luther King, but year-round he ended up touring the world, touring the country, touring the world, made great recordings, and then Baba died and, and Stacey Phillips died, but you've replenished the forces with a lot of the original people, and now you have the new album out. We're talking about the Afro-Semitic experience here in Dateline, New Haven. Let's take a listen to the single. And what does it mean to cut a single nowadays? Are there singles? What does it mean that this well, is the single? Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, the internet is very interesting when it comes to uh, the music field. It's changed everything. So you and I, if you wanted to, you could say, I'm going to cut a single. And that is put out a, a song. Simply go to the studio and make a song and just put it right out. And that's a single. Because the old days it meant put it on a 45, send it to the radio stations and say, this is the song on the album that we're pushing radio to play and to people to buy individually. Is that the same concept now in that trying to, even though you've done a whole album, and, and, and artists do this all the time, they release some songs or one video at a time to try to get that to play and put the effort behind the marketing. Are you doing that with this song? That actually plays a deep part of it. And it's part of the traditional approach, or if you could call it a traditional approach, to promoting an album. But... It's also very much in line with the uh, parlance or the behaviors of today on the market, which is to emphasize the single song. The single right, which song. is the same idea, just doing it differently. So how do you do it now? Do you put it on SoundCloud? Do you have a video of this? Are you, you put it on as many clouds as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and what clouds is this one on? Uh, this one is on um, Spotify. It's on... Uh, Bandcamp. It's on. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one. I think Pandora. Mm -hmm. um, it's on. Uh, I think. Is on it on everything. YouTube? I believe so. Yes. And then, so people can't get the whole album without purchasing. Is that correct? But you can get the single. Yes. So let's listen to the single. Why not? I dig it. Unity in the community. We used to have a, um, a, a, a group in New Haven. I think it was about 40, 50 years ago. But it, it lasted. Called Unity in the community. It's you know people love that phrase. Hey, one thing about that phrase, okay. Um, it was Baba Coleman that actually brought it to us. So it's very possible he may have had some and kind he of... He was a New Haven guy. Right. And, and what did he, tell me about him bringing it to you. Uh, well, you know, he had a lot of nice slogans. And uh, it made us think about what it meant to build community together and what it meant to have a community. All right, and listen to the song. And let's hold that thought, Warren, because I want to ask you more about that. Cool. Unity in the community, the single... It's not on a 45 piece of wax, but it's the single. That's right. Off your new Afro-American um, uh, Experience album, Our Feet Began to Pray. and brothers who finally got it right let's face up each other black brown yellow blue 
playing in the background Unity the Community the single of the new album by the Afro-Semitic Experience Our Feet Began to Pray we're here with Warren Bird pianist, co-founder and the vocalist on this and all the vocal tracks correct? That's correct Um, here on Dateline New Haven and WNHH so Warren who's the gospel band in this? Oh well it's us (laughs) Oh I thought they were because something said about the album version with gospel singers and a canter Oh yeah gospel singers Oh gospel singers uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to remember. I think uh, one is named Dana. Don't but they're ask not, me her they're last not on the name. Sing, they're not on the single version? Yes, they are. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they are, um, let's see, Dana is on uh, one of the vocalists. Um, let's see, Jonathan Berryman. Oh, I know him. He was on the air a few weeks ago. Oh. He's great. Well, there He's you go. He's in New Haven. He leads choirs. He's uh, an He's... assistant principal at... Um, I found it intimidating to yes, he have like him stuff, there, yeah. but he was very supportive, <laughs> very supportive. And I mean, I got the impression that he really liked what what was uh, what he was singing. He's a great soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there was one more name that I cannot recall. I'm very sorry. So no, it's okay. Um, and so you talked about what you're trying to accomplish. This song's been around how long? When did you write it? Who wrote it? You wrote it? Uh, no, me and David collaborated. And, uh, and how long have you been doing this? Because it's been at your concert for quite a while. Uh, let's see. I want to say that that came around the pike 2016. Mm-hmm. I want to say it came around the pike then. So Baba was still alive and also very possible. Yes, Stacy was still alive. And we hadn't gotten to record it yet. By the time we were heading into the studio, sometime around um, li- um, mid-March... 2020 um mid-march 2020 we were into the studio and we were waiting for baba to get on the plane to come on over um we where were, was it we were rehearsing in hartford um and we were going to record somewhere in west springfield the next day and then COVID just sort of struck and um the uh owner of the studio the the main engineer 
called us up and said, hey, they're closing down everything here. I'm scared to have you guys come up here and do this. I might have it already. That is COVID. And uh, I'm just not, I'm just, we're going to cancel everything. So, you know, three years went by. Baba passed away of cancer um, in that time. So we hadn't actually done a version of this recording-wise or to this extent, to this level, um, since the time, since its inception back in like 2016 or so. And um, I even want to think that this song predates the election of well, the, great, the great one. Yeah. <laughs> the great one. And, um, yeah, so it's been around a minute. So you've been playing this in 2016. You were preparing to record it in 2020. COVID hit. And it took another three years until you recorded it again? Yes. When did you record it? Well, we recorded it back in uh, August. Where? Of this year. Where was it? September. Let me think here. So it was in the fall. It was... I think it was in summer. Of oh, summer. Actually, yeah. And where were you? Same recording studio or somewhere else? We were at Firehouse 12. Oh, you did this at Firehouse 12, the whole album? Yep. Was it a concert night or no? No, no, no. Oh, so you recorded this at Firehouse 12 in New Haven. All That's right. correct. So Nick's studio there. That's awesome. Why'd you choose that place? Well, you know, I think David has developed a relationship with Greg DeCrosta over there. Mm -hmm. And he's done... A couple of we've done a couple of things down there, including the uh, Days of Awe mm -hmm. uh, recordings. I um, love those. And uh, he did his uh, New Haven Capella down there. And you know, David is uh, in many ways he's the puppet master mm -hmm. of this project. So he pulled a lot of the elements that he felt accustomed to together, and uh, he knows how to get it done. And Greg knows our sound pretty good. And they have a great studio. They have a great piano, very professional-looking studio with a perfect sound buffering and, and spacious, good lighting, etc. So you, um, you decided to put out this album, decided to put the song in it that you've been playing for a while. You talk about where you're looking for the blend of musicians before we listen to the song to have the right mix of people to bring big influences. And you talk about the song unity in the community. Does this all fit together into some goal of this project? of the Afro-Semitic experience, of this album, of the song, for who plays the music together. What kind of unity are you looking at? How is music a vehicle for building community <laughs> and unity? Woo! It's not a loaded question because I think the answer is pretty obvious, and we can even talk about the arts in general if you like. But uh, music has a way of melting away boundaries it can also strengthen boundaries, but really, when push comes to shove, once the beat starts, once the melody begins to explain, um, uh, sort of uh, waft itself into people's ears, something happens. Something happens that just melts away any resistance because it hits us in a very deep part of who we are as human beings mm -hmm. to hear music. So, I mean... It's almost uh, to say that music is a vehicle to uh, sort of galvanize people. But also on a mental level, if we want to talk about what it is we hope to accomplish with our music, that's almost extra. But it's an integral part to what motivates us, uh, motivates us to 
play. And I know that me and David are always talking about and thinking about what it means to bridge our differences. So I'm not going to sit here and say that, okay, my, the color of my skin doesn't exist, the color of your skin, your background as an individual doesn't exist, or mine. I'm not going to sit here and say that because the bottom line is, is that it's part of where we're coming from. And it helps us inform and whether it is that we choose to ignore or incorporate those things together, it's part of who we are. You know, that theme really comes through another song in the album, um, My Feet, Our Feet Began to Pray, which I remember we started playing that a few years ago. I go, wow, that's the Heschel quote, the Rabbi Heschel from the Marshall Washington. But as I learned from looking into your recording, there's also John Lewis, who was the student leader who became a congressman, civil rights leader. And they both talked about when they did the march on Washington and they were marching to end segregation, They're, they felt like their feet were praying. Wow. Which is the, well, that's your song. You sing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so, I'm, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. it. But every time I hear it, I'm always floored by it. And it apparently it, it may even predate that situation and come from an old African proverb. Oh, okay. Um, now, I don't know the origin of the proverb or uh, which country from which it stems, but uh, it's just a beautiful idea. The idea that we can sort of uh, co-opt the and reframe what it means to pray yeah. and use various aspects right. of our creativity to, hey, protract our energy, protract our positivity. So I'm going to put the song on now so that you need to jump out of the studio to up your parking on your phone. <laughs> and I know Harry has to do a few station IDs. So we're going to listen to My Feet Began to Pray from the new album on... Uh, Afro-Semitic experience and come back for 10 more minutes on a uh, on, uh, Dateline New Haven. Oh, you do this good, man. You're really good.
My feet began to pray on the new album by the Afro Semigan Experience. Warren Bird just told me he was here in the studio, the pianist, the singer on that song, the co-founder of the Afro Semitic Experience. That it's known as what um two people marching in the March on Washington, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and uh the civil rights leader John Lewis said and, and um Warren says that free phrase actually comes from the uh African proverb. So yeah, and then now, yeah, I would love to uh, go deeper into that and tell me find which African proverb it comes from. Mm-hmm. So, Warren, you grew up in Hartford? Yes, I did. And how? When, what age did you start getting into music? Well, I was um, very young. Um, I started singing in the choir at age four. Which which church? Uh, Warburton Community Church, which is sort of a, what they call UCC church, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, officially a congregational church, um, but um, eventually, I mean, you start talking about uh, all the various threads that influenced that church because a lot of those people actually came from very fundamentalist backgrounds, and so that imbued much of the way we praised and worshipped. And then, how did you transition to have this be your focus, playing piano and all that? Oh, yes. I don't think there was any transition at all. Um, you got to understand, uh, from a big family, I'm the youngest of 16. Wow. And there was all 16? Ca- that's correct. Did your parents remember all the names? <laughs> yes, they could. Wow. What they would often do, do is go through a list of names before they got the right <laughs> one. You know, hey, Ethan, Joshua, uh, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. Get over here now. <laughs> you already missed a chance, Mom. I was, you had me at Ethan. Yeah. That's right. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was actually a jolly experience to grow up in such a large family, and there was a lot of music, all kinds. Um, and I had one brother who... Uh, basically espoused a serious love of music, and he had a humongous jazz collection as Older well. Older brother? Yes. So you started hearing jazz records? Yeah, oh yeah, from and how very old, young. how old? Oh, I was, man, I can't even remember. But it was actually my father who turned me on to big band music. Um, and what did he do for a living, you did? Uh, you know, he was a um, factory worker. Um, he worked for Choice Vin and. I guess officially his uh, job description was um, sheet metal preparer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but he was actually sort of a factotum. Um, he could do a lot of different stuff very well, um, including tailoring. He was sort of a cook. Um, he did carpentry. You know, this, this guy, he was talented and not bad for someone who had to leave school at age 11. Yeah. We can go deep into the history there and talk about what it meant to be him in Georgia, southwest Georgia, back in, gee, that would be the late 20s, sometime around um, the big crash. Um, His father had to go and try and find work elsewhere or wanted to start work elsewhere, namely Baltimore, but didn't come back. Oh, my Lord. So suddenly he was the head of the family. What age? Age 11. Wow. Yeah, it's tough, but somehow he got through it. Yeah, and 
as a result, he became a man who could do many things well. Nonetheless, um, the family was full of a lot of music, and it was him who turned me on to people like uh, Count Basie um, and Duke Ellington, who's, of all the greats, he's really my guy. Yeah, Ellington just encompasses so much about what it means. Is it to fair me. to say he has some of the widest range among the jazz greats? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can't have that kind of longevity um, and not be able to incorporate what's Almost going on. Almost like a Picasso of the jazz world. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. So you grew up with that. When did you start playing piano? I started playing piano at age 10. Mm-hmm. Was already noodling before then, but. Um, Who taught you? Thomasina Neely, our our church uh, <coughs> choir director. Oh, really? So he saw the talent in you. That's talent. correct. Yeah. yeah. Did you play in church? Uh, eventually, um, and mostly by ear. <laughs> so you never did like this, this? Did you do the scales? Did you do the chord yeah, progressions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was this whole course during the summer for the kids who uh, lived in the neighborhood and who uh, regularly attended church. Um, you know, we learned little five note tunes and <laughs> but at some point were you learning diatonic scales of and course things like that yeah of course yeah and then some of that was just uh from my own um um my own uh drive for uh, uh understanding music but uh, a good deal of it was uh me focusing on good teaching uh so i i learned further uh, harmony and uh, theory in high school. I studied under a guy named uh, R. Leslie Childs, a graduate of Hart College of Music. Was and, he teaching uh, at the high school or did you go after school? Uh, high school. Which school was that? Uh, South Catholic High School in Hartford. Mm-hmm. Um, parents wanted me to get a good Catholic education in high school. You know, it's so interesting how Catholic education became the goal of people who weren't Catholic. <laughs> had this, like, brand, you know, they did branding. Yeah. And like some not positive, some very positive, but people felt like they learned. It's really interesting that you put it that way. I mean, you know, it, it, it I actually think it's a you were a Catholic, were you? No, I was not. No. But you went to Catholic school. Yeah, there you go. And, and I wasn't the only one, as you know. That's what I mean. Yeah. Long. So, actually, I, I recently uh, got to meet a, a well-known trumpet player by the name of Charles Tolliver, who uh, explains that he also went to Catholic uh, Catholic school, even though he was a Protestant. You learned how to improvise in Catholic school, which is kind of not the rep of that <laughs> form of education, right? <laughs> Memorization and the ruler and the knuckles. But So did you then have a career from the start in jazz? Were you always making your living as a musician? No, no, no. That, it, it was a long... I mean, being primarily self-taught, that was the other thing that um, my background as a youth... Um, uh, uh, trying to strive to do this. I, I actually was an actor um, and had done a bunch of uh, shows, including uh, about nine or ten musicals, some under uh, well-staffed situations for you know youth theater, um, and that was fun. Uh, I learned a lot about music in the process of doing that. But... Um, I also learned that I didn't want to be an actor because it was too hard. And if you're going to suffer so much, then you might as well just do the thing you really love. So the thing I really loved was music, and I enjoyed composing. And I was learning as a composer, and 
that's how I taught myself um, further how to uh, understand jazz and approach jazz music. Um, so I didn't really become full-time professional until I was about um, in my early 20s. So it took a while. That's still young. And yeah. you were able to get enough gigs, you were able to do recording. And, and did you build your career as a band leader, as someone playing in other people's bands? Well, you know, mostly as a sideman, a few things on my own. And uh, it was never really, um, like, uh, I worked with this one band that was working regularly out of the Hartford area. Um, and uh, sort of well-known in the Hartford area. If you're a baby boomer or a little younger, um, a band called Street Temperature. I don't remember. And um, it's like uh, they were working constantly. And it was good because it was sort of a jazz rock jazz pop band a little bit like weather report uh more a little of weather report um they they did a version of birdland for instance mm -hmm. um but more like steely dan oh, um, that far over okay um like uh, tower of power rock. um a little bit of uh horn bands too is it fair to say here a little bit of that tower of power in that part of unity community when it goes to the chant Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so Warren, you, you did your side career. You one main career is jazz, and then you got this whole thing Afro-Semitic. You've toured the world. Where are oh, some yeah. of the countries you've played piano? Well, Afro-Semitic experience actually got to make it over to Amsterdam, which is where my wife is from. Is that how you um, met? No, we actually met here in um, Connecticut. Okay. She um, was contracted to come over here and do a couple of shows um i love how she plays it's so out of the box yeah yeah, yeah. Added such she's a, a good dimension employee. to your group yeah and then she uh, she's got the belt and everything mm -hmm. and that was her claim to fame um, we're talking about sesky larue that's correct she actually has quite a following in the netherlands um had had a couple of hits over there as well um before she was uh, brought over here by someone and that's where i met her and um, eventually, we incorporated her into the band sometime around 2007, 2008. I remember when she started showing up, yeah. Right, and then she became a regular once we hit the teens, the 2000 teens. Um, and uh, she actually contributes a number on this album. Which one? Brighter Day. Okay. Sort of a uh, plaintive but um, bittersweet a uh, song of uh, hope. Um, Let, why, don't, why don't we get a little taste of that one? Yeah, why see, not? Let's see what that one is. Oh, here it is, the second phrase. Brighter Day, featuring Saskia LaRue in Afro-Semitic Experience from the new album, Our Feet Began to Pray on Dateline New Haven, WNHH.
That's a beautiful number. Brighter Day, the second track on the new album by the Afro-Semitic Experience. Our feet began to pray. Warren Bird, the pianist, co-founder of the group. Now, did she write that song? Yes, she did. I love the way where you take it. I hear such communication with you two. And then when you and David then take it apart. And I, I love that piece. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Warren Bird, congratulations on keeping this project alive now into its 26 years. So it's in your 27th now. Woo! Wow. And uh, congratulations on the new album, Our Feet Began to Pray. Where can people find this recording? Well, you can find it on our website. That is A-F-R-O-S-E-M-I-T-I-C-E-X-P. <laughs> oh, that's it? <laughs> you stop at the P? Oh. We do not stop at the oh, P. Okay, experience. Right. Dot, dot net. Net. All right. right. Is that the best place to buy it? Um, Probably. Okay. But you can also buy it on the usual places, such as Amazon, Bandcamp, mm -hmm. um, and so forth. Well, I think it's a great record. I recommend it for everybody. Oh, really. you're so kind. Thank you. I yeah. enjoy it very much. You know, it's funny... I'm, I can be my own worst critic, and um, I really have to allow some distance between uh, the original production or the time of doing something, and then uh, I need to have some time and allow things to just sort of disappear and then come back to it before I really can appreciate it. But this one, I appreciated the work right away. I really could feel like the depth and the power behind what we were doing. And I can't think of any more spiritually uplifting music than the Afro-Semitic Experience, <laughs> our own hometown group, going strong more than a quarter century with the new album, Warren Bird. Thanks for the joy and positive vibes you give us ah. in this world, and we need it so bad. <laughs> we do, don't we? We do, but you're doing it. Thank you. I'm glad you feel that way. And thanks to Harry Jost for working the controls. We're going to take it out the way we do every single time since 2015 on Dateline New Haven with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing not the version on the new album but the originally recorded version of I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from their group A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all week long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm -hmm.